Welcome to the Bylines Network podcast, the audio accompaniment to our growing family of regional Bylines publications. This week, we look at the situation in Afghanistan, with the attention of the mainstream media now gone, much has changed in the last few weeks. This week, I spoke with Martin Waller at East Anglia Bylines. Martin wrote a piece on the social care crisis, and we spoke about the government's proposed system of a health and social care levy. Your hosts for this week are me, Alex Toll, in Tower Hamlets. And me, Kerry Pearson in Leeds. So, Kerry, welcome back to the pod. It's been a couple of months since we last seen you. Um, and I think our many, many listeners would like to know more about what you've been up to. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, so I've taken a bit of a break. Over summer, I, I did an internship with a human rights think tank, which was really good. Um, and then more recently, I've moved into my flat in Leeds again for my final year which will start in a few weeks which I'm looking forward to but thought I'd come back for a a special episode on foreign policy which I love. Yes no definitely and it's been really good to have you back on given your sort of foreign policy specialization to talk about the situation in Afghanistan. Um, So yeah as we said in the intro it does sort of feel as though lots of the attention from mainstream from the mainstream media has now gone from the situation and it'll be really good to sort of review what's going on on the ground right now. Yeah I definitely agree I think that um, for a time I think it happens with a lot of political events that the media will cover it a lot of people on Twitter will be talking about it and then suddenly the attention's gone and people kind of forget about what's going on even though you know people are still stranded um, so yeah, so it's really great to have you back on the pod, given all of your foreign policy experience to talk about Afghanistan. Um, so we did sort of mention at the start that now that lots of the UK presence has left, now that all of the US presence has left, that attention has sort of gone away to other issues, particularly domestically this week, um, but that actually lots is still sort of going on in Afghanistan right now. Um, so do you think you'd be able to quickly run down with our audience what's been going on um, on the ground? Yeah, definitely. So um, I agree that the media attention has definitely gone. I think probably from the day that America and then the UK left the country, um, the attention has been been drawn to things like Brexit and or coronavirus still. Um, but actually, I'm, I personally don't think that the media have shown much about the Taliban taking the Panjshir Valley, which for a long time... Um, citizens over there were putting up a really good fight actually against the Taliban well as well as they could um and then more recently they've taken it and meaning that they've now got control of the whole country um and I personally think that they the media should have done a bit more of a follow-up about what that means for the government well if you can call the Taliban a government um and ultimately what it will mean for women and protesters and other people that have worked for the British forces like a lot of interpreters and translators that have been left behind. Yeah definitely so in the last couple of weeks we have seen um, the Taliban sort of setting up their um, government Um, again there is this whole sort of debate going on right now about whether you should even be recognizing the Taliban as a legitimate government and what that does for people of Afghanistan but yeah they sort of they've named their cabinet um, they've brought back lots of sort of hardline um, actions from the 90s, um, including this Ministry of Virtue and Vice, which is this sort of famous force sort of crackdown on anti-Islamic influence. And they've also sort of published quite a few sort of regressive restrictions. Um, 
women have been banned from playing sport and there's been this whole crackdown on unapproved protests and slogans. Definitely and I think um, I heard on the radio actually that before the Taliban had taken control of of Afghanistan they they'd actually spent a lot of money on marketing campaigns because they felt as though the media had portrayed them as an evil influence which of course many including myself would perceive them as um and I think a lot of people saw interviews with the Taliban talking about how they would allow women to stay in positions of power and that they would allow them to go out without a man like they previously had had to in the 90s but actually I feel like the West have kind of abandoned women and other people that worked for the UK and well, just everyone there really. Yeah, and I guess we've seen this recently with obviously the sort of debates about refugees. So yes, the UK has done quite badly here in terms of taking in refugees. So we're currently looking at taking in about 5,000 refugees a year, which is fewer than countries like Italy, Switzerland and Sweden, which leaves sort of hundreds, thousands of people who have helped the UK um, during the war um, in Afghanistan stranded in the country or in other countries. And actually, I believe you've been talking with someone on the ground who has been one of these people who has been sort of forsaken by the government. Yeah, I have. And I'm I'm not going to reveal his name because I, he's still in Afghanistan and I think he would still be a target of the Taliban. But he re- had reached out to Yorkshire Bylines in the Bylines Network to try and get his story out a few weeks ago with obviously the plan of the UK and the US leaving, a lot of people were unsure about how quickly the Taliban would take the country. And actually, it was quicker than most people, including the Taliban, I think, expected. Um, He reached out and wrote with him an article about his situation, which was really harrowing, actually. So he told me about him and his family. They had tried to cross the border from Afghanistan to try and escape from the Taliban. And actually, his family his wife and his children were kidnapped and and beaten and he himself was um actually imprisoned for a month and then sent back to Afghanistan and that was actually before the Taliban had taken control of the whole country so when they had I reached out to him again via whatsapp to try and understand his situation and he told me that it wasn't good that he could hear fire shots on the street and And that was all I'd heard for a while. And then one day I received a phone call from him and he told me that he'd been granted eligibility. He'd worked for the UK for over seven years as an interpreter. He'd shown me photos with the crew and the other, the UK troops. Um, So he told me that he was really appreciative and grateful for the help that we had given him. So I, I kind of got a bit hopeful thinking that he would be able to get out. But like a lot of other people that worked for the British and Americans they they were left behind and and that's his situation at the moment um so we're kind of following it closely and hoping that he'll be able to escape but for the time being we're we're not writing anything about him or publishing his name because we're concerned more for his safety at the moment yeah definitely and it's really sort of important that as journalists we always sort of consider the implication of our sources and trying to keep their confidentiality during these sorts of times. And it's a real shame too, because we've seen over the past couple of weeks, obviously this whole like discourse about um, what's his face, um, Penn Hemingway and like the pets that he's been taking back and whatever you think about that whole situation, 
it's this sort of real shame that it takes that kind of like social media mobilization it takes all this fundraising and like private money to get people out in the situation where we've poured sort of hundreds of millions of pounds in foreign aid into this country we've tried we've been trying to help thousands of people and just because of the speed of what's happened because this intelligence failure that we've left so many stranded in the country Definitely. I couldn't actually believe the story about rescuing um, dogs and cats and different animals. And and I myself am an animal lover, but I couldn't believe that they would be able to spend that much time, but also the resources to put to put into rescuing dogs rather than than people that that belong with us who have worked for our for our country and that we wouldn't have been able to stay there without their support. Um, yeah, I saw, I saw a fact that I think over a thousand people that had been granted eligibility, like the man that we've been speaking to, were left behind. So obviously that's people that have a full right to be in the UK and to be safe with their family. And they've just been left behind, like you say, due to intelligence failures and, in my view, a lack of preparation, really. Yes. And already, even now, we're seeing moves by the government to make it harder for them to come. So this morning, uh, we're recording this on Thursday, but we saw this morning sort of news coming in that Pretty Patel is using her sort of powers as minister to authorise the border forces to turn away migrant boats from France. Um, and again, it's a sort of real shame that when countries like Canada were able to settle 25,000 refugees in just 81 days, that we're potentially turning away boats which might have people on them who have saved the lives of British soldiers. Definitely. I think the whole, the new law that the government have introduced is really damaging and frankly quite dangerous. I think that going back to the media, I think they have a big role to play in, in the type of language that they use about refugees. So describing them as illegal immigrants or, or even immigrants, you know, they're not, they're not immigrants and a refugee can't be illegal. They have a full right to be granted asylum wherever they land. Um, and I think it makes the UK look even worse, worse than they already did if that was possible. Um, I think it just, sh it just shines a light on how disillusioned we've, we've become with kind of human rights and, and helping other people that have, like you say, worked for us and, and actually enabled us to do our job. Yeah, definitely. And looking back to that interpreter you've been working with, so we don't quite know where he is now, which is, I guess, a bit of a worrying sign for any potential government efforts to extract people like him. So how much do you think these people can even be helped at this point? And obviously, is it too late for us to really help them? I don't know. I think a lot of people don't... I don't think anyone really knows the solution of, of what to do with the country. I don't think the UK could have stayed endlessly or infinitely in the country but equally I think they could have better prepared or put in infrastructure in the in the last 20 years to hope that the Afghan government would be able to to withhold the Taliban um, but clearly clearly that has failed um, so I think regarding the interpreters and other people that will be trying to get out of the country I think the best that we can do is to not introduce the type of laws that Priti Patel has put forward and and actually encourage people to come come to the country. Um, probably, I'm not sure how they'll get here. I'm not sure if we would be able to send over military military airplanes to help them, or if they'll have to come 
in quotation marks, the usual way of refugees getting here. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not sure anyone really knows. And we'll be sure to give any updates if the interpreter that you've, you've been speaking to manages to get out of the country and to safety. Definitely. I'm um, still in contact with him. I'm reaching out to him regularly to, to try and see if he's okay, but I feel a bit helpless if I'm honest about what I can do at the moment. This week I spoke with Martin Waller at East Anglia Bylines. Martin is a retired journalist and he did a piece this week about the um, about the plans to raise national insurance to pay for social care in lieu of a health and social care levy. So we're delighted to be joined today by Martin Waller from East Anglia Bylines. Martin, thanks for joining us. Morning. So um, we always like to do a bit of a chat at the start about sort of each author's sort of background, and you have a particularly interesting one for this. So could you tell our, our audience a little bit about sort of uh, your professional background coming into this? I was a journalist for 40 years. Um, I specialised in finance, business, economics, um, spent the last 30 years at the Times, um, where I wrote a column on investment and business matters, taking large business stories of the uh, of the day and sort of pulling them apart and analysing them and what they really meant. But obviously, I'm not a, a taxation expert. My background is actually law. Um, we go back to my rather elderly law degree. Um, I, was, I retired about three years ago. I moved out to Woodbridge in Suffolk two years ago. Um, started writing to uh, East Anglian bylines pretty much from the start, I think. Yes. Um, and the bylines is very new and doing very well. In taxation, because I think there are an awful lot of decisions that need to be made. Um, and we've seen what happened this week. Um, I wrote a piece about it beforehand, which was somewhat preempted by events because I didn't actually know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but it's obvious there will be a rise in national insurance, which is the most important thing. Um, and I suppose... I was approaching it from my own personal experience um, of my, my family. Um, I have had experience with, with social care in the past. Um, and I have a vague idea how it works. The rules are hideously complicated and don't always make sense. But my starting point really was the fact that it's perfectly possible for you to live in a home worth the best part of a million pounds and still have your, some of your social care fees funded by the public sector, by the mainly local council. And when we talk about social care, I don't just mean care homes. I'm thinking people who come into your house and help you dress and, and, and cook your meals and whatever. That, that's all one, one package. I mean, it always struck me as slightly absurd that if you were sitting on an asset worth best part of a million quid, someone else was paying for your upkeep effectively. I mean, I don't quite understand. I can see why that is happening politically. And we can go into that in some detail. But it, logically, it doesn't seem to make any sense. If my car breaks down, I've got £10,000 in the bank and it costs 1000 to fix. I don't go to the local council and say, can you chip in a quarter of it? It just doesn't work that way, unless I have a special needs and I, I need a special needs vehicle. Um, we, we haven't had this debate here. I'm going to start off, if you don't mind, by reading something which I read on Twitter by a chap I know. And he's an expert on the property market. He's not an expert on taxation on social care. He has no particular party political affiliations that I'm aware of. And I read what he said, and he said, immediate reaction is, just so I'm clear, there really are some people who want me and other taxpayers to pay for their care in their old age so that they can pass the value of their house onto their kids. Very good. Puts it, puts it in a nutshell. 
this is the case. If what we then saw this week was two, 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 as I understand it, and I don't understand all of it because we haven't had all the details, but there are two main um, events. One is the 1.25% rise in national insurance. And the second is the proviso that you will only in one lifetime pay, I think, £86,000 in social care costs. Yes. Now, presumably they're, they're after the state pays. It's not entirely clear who pays, um, which fund it comes out of. We, we know the rise in national insurance raised, is expected to raise 36 million billion. Um, that sounds like a lot, and it's little more than a tenth of the last public sector deficit, which yeah. is 303 billion. So it's not exactly a huge amount given how much we own and the problems that we have with the economic situation post, post pandemic. Um, it, it isn't clear. It is said most will go to the NHS. We know that some sort of tax would have to be raised to put into the NHS and to try and get the public sector finances back on the even keel. 5.4 billion is set aside for quote social care, except that as far as I can see, it's not been um, in, in the tax jargon hypothecated. It's not been earmarked. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear to me and to other commentators quite why all 36 billion, 36 billion should not end up with the NHS. I don't quite see the link with social care. Nonetheless, what we now have is a system whereby somebody is going to have to fund social care costs for anyone who has exceeded that 86,000 threshold. That may sound like a lot, but the average cost of a care home is £32,000 a year, I read. It's much more than that in places like the southeast and East Anglia, which are more prosperous. That 86,000 cap doesn't take much to reach. Right. Who pays for it after that? The Treasury? Not entirely clear. Local councils currently contribute to social care costs, as I know from my own experience. They couldn't begin to afford it. Yeah. If everyone who survived, say, let's say three years in a care home suddenly had their entire fees mm. paid for by the council. The council would go bust, couldn't be yeah. afforded. We don't know where the money's coming from. What we do know is what you have done, or what the government has done, has ensured that the inheritance that would be handed over to the offspring of people in care has been safeguarded. Yeah. Up, up to a figure of 86,000. If you're living in a house worth 700,000, you pay 86,000 and the rest of it, by definition, when you die, goes to your offspring. Um, that seems to me pretty remarkable. If you bear in mind that the national insurance, which is supposed to pay for this, if indeed it does, is a very regressive tax. It falls worst on people who are less well paid. It's structured in that way. I've no idea why. Um, I think there's a misconception that national insurance was used uh, rather than income tax or sales tax or whatever, because people have this vague idea that you're paying into an insurance policy to pay for your old age. That is not true, has never really been true. It is just another tax. That I think is the way it's been done this way. So we are effectively safeguarding the inheritance of people who live in very large expensive houses by a tax which falls worst on the poorest. Yes. I have a problem with that. I don't know anyone else has a problem with that, but I have a problem with that. It seems a little a little strange. Um, now, a couple, a couple other things to throw into the mix here, which are quite, I think are quite relevant. By a coincidence, the Institute for Fiscal Studies this week published a 
survey, a note which proved something which we'd all believed, but hadn't really had the mathematical numbers behind it. People who are wealthy, or towards the wealthy end of the spectrum, are more likely to have offspring who are themselves wealthy. Yeah. The converse applies to people who are poorer. Now, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's why I was believing obvious, but no one's actually done that, run the numbers and proven it. People who are living in a house worth the best part of a million are wealthy. It is likely their offspring will also be wealthy. They don't necessarily need the money. No. I'm afraid that in most cases is going to be the case. Um, they're going to get the money. Let's look at what happens if you don't do it this way. Let's look at what happens if you require all the costs of social care to be borne from the estate of the person who's being cared for. This can be done. This does occasionally does happen if, for example, um, there are two people, old people in, a home, in their own home, and one goes into a care home. The home, still being occupied by the other partner, cannot be sold to pay for that care home fees. That's what, and that seems to me entirely fair and reasonable. I can't see anything wrong with that whatsoever. Um, would be iniquitous to have somebody forced out of their home to pay care and fees to their partner who had become iller than they were. That 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 doesn't make sense. Um, but on the other hand, we come back to this whole idea um, that people who are wealthy are being allowed to pass on their wealth to people who are probably also wealthy uh, by means of the tax paid mainly by the more by the poor. Again, same same old problem. Chuck a couple of other things into the mix here. Um, I've long believed that we are in this country heading for a greater state of wealth inequality. Yeah. There are drivers for that that existed before the pandemic. Let's look, but some of them were accelerated by the pandemic. Let's take working from home. Now, working from home transfers resources from inner cities, jobs in sandwich bars, coffee bars, whatever, done by low paid people, to the place where the person working from home is working from. I, because of the sort of professions that can be done from home, they're more likely to be prosperous suburbs or places like where I live in, 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 in Suffolk. Um, that money that would be spent in the inner city is now being spent where the person works from home. That's a transfer of resources from the less deprived area to, to from a more deprived area to a less deprived area. The large number of ill-paid jobs lost in retail and hospitality. Mm. A lot done by women. The study by the TUC showed majority done by women, I believe. Um, that is going to increase inequality because those people at the bottom of the pile. Now, throw in one other aspect. This has not generally been noticed. Some economists have done some work on it. Um, one factor that will be dry is driving and will be driving inequality very, very strongly indeed mm -hmm. is inheritance. Yeah. If you think about it, all the people who bought their homes in the 50s and 60s and made a huge billions of unearned income are beginning to die. And their offspring, as we said earlier, are inherited. We've just safeguarded, as I say, some of that inheritance. The people who were brought up in rented accommodation or council homes, um, and whose parents don't own their own home, aren't inheriting. They're likely to be less poor, they're likely to be more poor, less well off. So another huge driver is dumping billions of pounds into the bank accounts, people who are already quite well off, while people who are not well off are not benefited the same way. That has to drive social inequality. This is wealth inequality, I should say, and social inequality. 
the, there's an um, a index called the Gini index, which is named after an Italian economist, not something that lives in a bottle. The Gini index measures that um, in any society, any country. You will not be surprised to hear that our Gini index currently lags behind the US in terms of unfairness, but is well ahead of the Nordic countries, the Netherlands and other places. You wouldn't, that, that wouldn't surprise anyone really, would it? I think the inequalities is going to rise and I think that Gini index will, will look a great deal worse over the next 10 years. One of the drivers I'd say is inheritance. Now we've just made that more likely. Yeah. Not a terribly clever thing to do really. Um, it's worth looking at what the alternatives were to raising, we accept we have to raise fresh funds. Mm -hmm. We said the NHS was, un, I believe, underfunded, other people believe, underfunded for, for about a decade, and was then hit by a ton of bricks when the pandemic descended. It's unsustainable. We all know what happens. People, there are five, allegedly five million people waiting for routine operations at the moment mm -hmm. who can't get to hospital because it's full of COVID sufferers. 90% of who are unvaccinated. Let's not go down that one, shall we? <laughs> um, I suppose if you accept we have got to raise a large amount of money, how do we do that? Well, as I say, sales taxes, increase in VAT, falls worst on people who spend more money. People with families who have to feed them, clothe them, not retired pensions like me. Yeah. Um, bringing down the rate at which we pay 40% income tax or not allowing it to rise in, 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 in pace of inflation also drags more people who are poorer into a higher tax rate. That's regressive. I would argue that we should be taxing wealth and not income. Yeah. We are taxing income through NI. We are safeguarding wealth through the social care measure, the 86,000 pound cap. How do we get around this? What I'm going to say will be extremely unpopular, politically very damaging, because the people who are gaining from this are people who are already well off and waiting for mum and dad to die so they can be even better off. And they make a lot of noise mm. and they have a, apply a lot of pressure. I think it is arguable. Let's take an example where someone is what's called asset rich and cash poor. Someone is living in a house worth best half a million, but doesn't have a particularly large pension. Mm. That, excuse me. That person has got to, who's a retired. That person has got to raise a certain amount of money, say, if we have a wealth tax, which I believe we should have a wealth tax, or if they have to pay for their social care. They've got to find something. It is quite feasible to raise funds on the value of their home by a system called equity release, which mm -hmm. is basically putting a charge on the home. Um, which is then repaid when it's sold or on death. And that's taken out with the large city institutions. It's very, very easy to do. It is quite expensive. But what it does is whittle down the inheritance of the people, of the offspring of the person who's taking out the loan. That doesn't seem to me to be terribly unjust. Yeah. If it means that more resources, local councils, state resources go to the truly deserving people yeah. who are poor people on universal credit whatever i don't think i don't see any huge problem with those middle-aged middle-class wealthy individuals waiting mum and dad to die to pay, end up a little bit less on on, mm. on the on the sad occasion 
Um, I think that's one way which, which social care, and I would also argue a one-off wealth, wealth tax should be funded. There's an outfit called the Wealth Tax Foundation did a study in December, and they estimated the sums that would be, could be raised, quite substantial, uh, on an impost of 5% on anybody who has assets more than 500,000. That, that mathematically works quite well, actually. Um, and those assets would include your house value and your pension. This can be done very easily. The problem is, it is extremely expensive because people who do that are generally pretty desperate. If you think about retired people without enough income to come in, sitting on a big house, they are a captive market. They can be charged quite high fees by these institutions. Who, and the institutions love this sort of, this sort of asset because it creates a loan that by definition is going to be repaid, by definition. And it creates an income stream, a return, that percentage on the loan, of interest paid on the loan, which is rolled up, by the way. You don't pay it as you're going along. It just comes off along with the rest of the loan itself when the loan becomes due. Institutions love this sort of business. The problem we have is trying to work it, make it work fairly so they're not people aren't being ripped off. I have a suggestion for that. I suggested this before. Um, I believe what we should be doing to look at to cope with social care costs by means of the equity release and by raising the wealth tax by means of equity release is to set up, probably attached to the Treasury, a department, say a department for equity release, and ask those city institutions to bid in competitively what rates they are prepared to accept. The greedy ones get turned get turned down. The sensible ones who are looking at a return, I'm not going to give any figures, but a single single figure return at a time when bank rates and returns on bills are zilch. Yeah. You find that very, very attractive indeed. Guaranteed return, guaranteed repayment, um, and they can even work out actuarially how the money will come back. If you have a loan book of a few thousand people, you look at their ages and you can work out by means of actuarial tables, that will come back in dollars. This is just what the city wants. It also takes some of the billions and billions of their unearned income on housing and recycles it to a good yeah. purpose. That's that's really good. Also creates a very healthy, safe asset class, those city institutions, those loans. Mm -hmm. And these people look after our pensions. Yeah. So I would suggest it's better our pensions are invested in something which is almost certainly going to pay a decent return and be repaid than stocks and shares or gilts offering very little return. Yeah. That's blue sky. It's very unpopular. I think it would work. And I think this is the solution, I think, to the social care crisis and to the wealth tax. Um, so other forms of tax are indeed re regressive. Yeah. I put this idea to a few people. Not one has thought of a reason why it shouldn't be done. No one's much liked it, but... And this is where we get to the political angle, isn't it? Because I'm so sorry. And this is where we get to the political angle, isn't it? Well, this is exactly the point. Um, and there are other forms of taxation that could be could be raised. Now, uh, one of the things I lobbied very strongly for, columns I've written, is for the criminalisation of tax avoidance. Yeah. Just make it illegal. All those schemes fall away. Another, another very fair policy, which could be sold to the public. You know, rich people now have to pay the, pay the full rate of tax. That, that's attractive. This is going to be much less attractive, except to people who are at the bottom of the pile, for whom it isn't a problem.
So if you haven't got much income coming in, um, your social care costs will have to be covered anyway. Uh, I don't, I can't see anything wrong with that. It's, it's radical. So I, I think so Humphrey used to say on yes, minister, what's it? Brave, was it brave? Courageous, courageous. Um, I don't think it has a hope in hell of coming in at any stage in the near future, but something has got to be done and it wouldn't solve a lot of the problems we have, we've discussed. Yes. Do you have any thoughts? No, several. Um, and actually, I was going to do a piece about this myself um, up in Yorkshire, but ended up not doing it in the end. But I think you sort of reflected lots of what I was thinking about this. Um, one thing which really struck me was the fact that as, um, so if you're a graduate who's earning about 27K, you're paying about a 40% or 42.5, I believe it is, marginal tax rate. But it's um, higher than that. I've seen higher than that. If you're taking mm. in student loans. Yeah, no, including that, yeah. I think I've seen higher than that, but I, I, I mm. haven't seen the numbers. May yeah, even be but, higher, particularly if you're a master's student as well. Um, and it's all a sort of legacy of an outdated tax system, essentially, where most money did come in through income, through POIE, um, and it could be taxed in this sort of way. But as you sort of said throughout the, your um, piece and throughout this conversation today, um, I believe it's the case that so the under 35 generation have about 7% of the nation's wealth, but then the 55 to 64 generation have about 31%. And how is that wealth going to get transferred? It's only going to go through inheritance. And that's sort of the whole point of it's only going to really fuel this inequality, not only yes, between yes. generations, but within them. So one stat that I found quite um, compelling, actually, was the fact that besides single parents, it's actually single pensioners who have the highest poverty rates. In the UK, yep, yeah, we have to forget, mustn't forget this. They don't, they don't all live in houses worth seven hundred thousand. No, actually, pension of poverty has actually lessened over the last few years. It is lower than it, it is. It's less than it was. It is. You're quite right. Still a problem. See, what I, what I will also come back to is this question of taxing wealth and not income. Um, yeah. One measure this week was a slight increase in the rate of tax paid on dividend payments. It's pretty marginal. It's not going to affect very many investors. That could be looked at. Um, I think um, capital gains tax is another one, yeah. which is relatively painless. I think there's a, again, this would be wildly unpopular, but there's an argument for saying if you buy a house for 600,000 um, and five years down the line, you sell it for 800,000 because the price has gone up mm. um, and you buy another house. I think there's an argument that that 200,000 gain should be taxed. It yeah. would have the effect of taking an awful lot of heat after uh, out of our insane property market. Mm. I mean, let's be honest, we have a totally ambivalent attitude towards property. We love reading that our property's gone up by 10% over the last year. We're 10% richer. We're not, because if we're going to buy something that we're going to up by 10% as well. It's a fallacy. We then complain that our children can't find anywhere, anywhere to afford to live. There's, there's, a, there's an absolute mismatch there. And it's intergenerational inequality, and it's deeply unfair. We have got to do something about that. And the sort of thing I'm talking about today CGT, um, dividend tax, tax on 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 people on rent, yep. chargeable to landlord, which is is currently taxed but not terribly highly. No, um, it's not. those are the sort of thing which we they're they're very radical. They're not going to be popular, but they are the sort of thing we need. This is the conversation we need to be having mm. at this stage. I think I don't I don't think we can ignore it a great deal longer. In many ways. The pandemic accelerated the process. We would have maybe having this, this discussion five years' time. We are now going to have to have it now. Yeah. Something has got to be done. Yes. And actually, that 
popularity question is an interesting, interesting one, isn't it? Because there was for sort of years, particularly after 2017, this idea of a 1% income tax to fund the NHS was incredibly, incredibly popular because people like the idea of taxation, they like the idea of the NHS. And actually at the start of this week, there were lots of polls saying this idea of raising NI was quite a popular one. But then when the reality of that became clear, um, it's now much less popular. And actually particularly amongst those younger generations, the idea that income will be taxed rather than wealth. Um, and I guess my question for you would be, do you think this is actually going to mark a real scene change in how we view taxation and how we view taxing wealth versus income? We are entering into areas that are deeply political. I yeah. think that's something we should try and avoid. I don't see this happening under the current administration because they've shown today, this week, they're going to do the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, so I don't make a party political point, but I would suggest that something is, there may have to be certain changes to our political process to allow that to happen. But I think it's got to happen. I don't think we can ignore it for quite too long. I say we, no. We're looking at it earlier than we would have had to, but at some stage we've had to look at this. Um, and I think the measures I've talked about, wealth tax funded from property, uh, capital gains tax on property gains, um, are a lot less painful than making young people pay more in national insurance, or less well-off people pay more in national insurance. But pensioners don't pay national insurance at all. Bear in mind. Mm. I don't I don't think I, I think you had, haven't got to think too hard about this without taking a part of a political point to think that this that there's a deeply unfair unfairness about our tax system, um, which will need some sort of reform at some stage. I'm not sure how the political process to allow that to happen can, can come about. That's my main skepticism. Yes, and particularly with turnout rates as they are with pensioners versus young people. Um, the incentive just isn't really there to actually reform the system when the people who it's going to benefit aren't showing out to vote right now. You would argue, I would argue, that actually that sort of thing I'm talking about would actually be quite popular hmm. with people who are not that well off, who don't own their own homes, who may be rent, renting or in council accommodation, and likely at the bottom of the pile socially and economically. Um, a lot of those, again, trying to avoid party political points, but the last election saw a lot of people like that switching their votes to the Conservatives in the so-called red ball, blue wall seats, whatever you want to call them. Um, those policies might be quite attractive to people like that. So it's part, it, it's, I'm not trying to make a party political point. I don't think the current administration is capable of doing this. No, um, and we'll have to see what keeps on going on with this. Um, have you, as out of an interest sort of question, um, in your research? Yeah, bit, sorry. Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, just wondering, out, out of interest, if you, in, in your experience, had sort of seen any countries which were taxing wealth in this sort of way and which had those sorts of improved outcomes? Uh, sorry, I, did, I couldn't quite follow the question. Um, yes, I'll, yeah, I'll see if I can actually improve that on my mic setup. Um, if I sorry, increase that on... Yeah, two secs, sorry. Um, Yep, so I was just wondering if you had experienced in your research any sort of countries which were taxing wealth in that sort of way and had those sorts of improved outcomes. The, so there are certainly countries that do that. I think the Nordic countries um, in particular. Um, I don't know whether their outcomes are better as a consequence because it's very difficult to cross-read from one country to another. Countries have different problems. They, they, they may be better off um, than 
perhaps in social terms than we are, but it's very difficult to say whether that's down to tax policy or, I mean, certainly in, in places like Finland, famously in Finland, some years ago, um, a chap was actually very successful business, was actually paying more in tax for a year than he'd earned previous year. Because some bizarre quirk because of the earnings he'd made. It wasn't seen as particularly remarkable. You can imagine what would happen here. Yeah. Um, so it's very hard to, to read across and forecast um, different outcomes from different countries, which may have different social setups and structures anyway. Certainly, the, the notion of paying a fair rate of tax is not regarded as, is, is, as unusual or unacceptable in countries like that. And in fact, I, one of my points I, I keep going back to is that 30 years ago, tax avoidance was pretty unusual and well, not paying your full rate and was socially rather frowned on. Mm. Um, that seems to have changed somewhat. It seems to be quite un, un, unremarkable that someone could, a very rich man can, can structure his affairs, move abroad or whatever, so he doesn't have to pay, have to pay full rate of tax. Um, I think what I'd like to see is that become socially unacceptable again. Yeah. That's the change of attitude I'm talking about. Which you to see somebody who earned, earned, owns hundreds of millions. I, I know people like that when I worked in the city, when I covered the city. Um, who structured their affairs without paying tax. And I was as well, that's normal, you wouldn't do it. You'd do that, wouldn't you? Um, I can't afford the expense of accountants. So I can't do that, even if I would, and I certainly wouldn't. Um, I think our attitude towards tax is key to all this, mm -hmm. is to what extent do we believe that we should bear a proper burden of tax in order to help out those less well off than us? Um, my own personal belief is yes, and I think what we need is a change in attitudes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that will come about. What we're doing is going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Well, this has been really fascinating. Thank you for your time, um, and be sure to check out uh, Martin's article in East Anglia Bylands. Thanks to Martin Waller for speaking with us this week. Be sure to check out his article in East Anglia Bylands, which we'll be linking in the show notes below. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow us at ByLinesPod on social media. As always, thanks to Julian Greenbank for editing the episode. And as always, our music was Boxer Revolution by Kevin McLeod. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs>